When does a person have human rights? Are we going to be pro-choice or pro-life? How are we going to do family planning? What happens if we have an unexpected pregnancy? If we're doing in vitro fertilization, how do we make the decisions that we're supposed to make along the way? All of these questions are rooted in a more foundational question, a more fundamental one. Is an embryo a baby? When is a person a person? And for the biblical worldview, the most important aspect to that question is, does the Bible talk about it? Do the scriptures answer that question for us? Let's see. Hi, I'm Joseph Walter, and this is Loving Theology. So we're in a series talking about big questions, trying to resolve them once and for all. And last time we talked about actually this same question, is an embryo a baby, but from the lens of science. We asked the question, what does science have to say? When does life begin scientifically? Scientifically, there are certain characteristics of living things that whenever they're present, define something as alive. And all of those characteristics become present precisely at the moment of conception, precisely at the moment of fertilization. But then we ask the question, is that first cell that's formed by fertilization a living thing, or is it actually a person? So we, we took a look first at what is a person, and a person is defined as a human individual. So then we ask the question, okay, um, is that living thing human? And indeed it is. It is. It has human DNA at the moment of conception. But is it an individual organism? Is it an individual human? And we saw that, yes, scientifically speaking, the observable facts are that there is a human individual organism at the moment of conception. But then we ask the question, is there maybe something more here? Is there something more to the definition of person than simply being a human individual? What about the soul? Now, the soul isn't really a scientific concept. And we looked at it last time through the lens of it being a social concept and what history has to teach us. We saw that history taught us that there is no distinction between the human individual and the person, that any time that we have an example from history where we have viewed an individual, an individual human as not being a person, like the transatlantic slave trade or the Holocaust, we've looked back on that through the lens of history with regret. We've realized that that was a mistake, that the fabrication of that distinction has only ever been met with sorrow through the lens of history. But I said also that really the soul, first and foremost, is not just a social concept, but a religious one. So what does the Bible have to say? Does the Bible answer this question for us of whether or not there is a soul whenever that human individual is alive at conception? Now, the most common word for soul in the Bible is found in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, that word is nephesh, and it's most commonly translated as soul. But it's also translated as person. That's the third most common translation. So what that means to me is that we're looking at the right word. That whenever we're trying to ask the question of, is there more to being a person? Is there, is there something about the soul? That this is the right word because it's been translated both as soul and as person. It represents both of those concepts, in other words, biblically. But how is that word used? As one example of this word, whenever Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman from the dead, it said that whenever, his, whenever he came back to life, that his soul returned to him. For that reason, the Helps Word Stories demonstrates, and I'll read it here, that, that the soul departs at death and returns with life. That based on the way that the scripture uses this term soul, we can say that it departs at death and returns with life. And this starts to explain the second most common translation for this word nephesh. The second most common translation for the word for soul is life. What does that mean? What that means is that the, the concept for life and the concept for soul are expressed by the same word biblically. In other words, the concept for life, the concept for soul, the concept for person, all of those are the same concept in the Bible. 
Another way of saying that is that our life is inseparable from our soul. That to say that a human is alive is to say that they have a soul, is to say that they are a person. That we cannot draw a distinction between those. And in that we see confirmation of what we saw from our historical discussion last time. That to fabricate a distinction between the human individual and a person with a soul is fundamentally flawed. So what does this mean and how do we use it? Well, if you start with what we saw last time, that scientifically speaking, objectively, a human individual is alive at the moment of conception. What that means is that biblically, that human individual has a soul. Because they're alive, they have a soul. They are a person. And it really is as simple as that, that a person is alive at conception, that it is a baby at conception. But am I just connecting dots in my mind? Or does the Bible actually demonstrate this for us? Does the Bible even talk about conception? And in what way does it talk about it? Does it talk about it in the context that a person is conceived or simply that a thing is conceived? Let's start in Job. Now, maybe you're familiar with the story of Job and know that he faced a lot of hardship. And after he had everything taken away from him, he basically wished that he were simply dead. He just wishes that it was over. But he also said not that just that he wishes that he were dead, but he wishes that he was never born. In Job 3.3, 3, he even takes that one step further. In, in verse 3, it says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. What Job is basically saying here is, I wish that I had never been born. In fact, I wish that I had never been conceived. So in the context there, what he's acknowledging is that he was conceived, that his existence began at conception, that he wishes that he had never even existed. Let me give a few more examples. In Song of Solomon 3, 4, the, the woman from Song of Solomon, the Shulamite woman, is talking and she says, I wish that I could bring him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. In Psalms 51.5, David says this, In sin did my mother conceive me. In both of these verses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what they're acknowledging is that they were conceived. That it wasn't a thing that was conceived, but it was David, an individual person with a unique calling that was conceived, that existed at conception. So in other words, biblically speaking, these examples demonstrate that it is a person that was conceived. Now these are just three examples. In fact, the word conception shows up, depending on your translation, 56 different times in the Bible. And there are even, there are even other references where the word isn't translated as conception, but still that root word for conception is there. So in other words, even more than 56 times does the concept of conception show up in the Bible. And the most frequent use of that concept is in the context of a person's story that the Bible tells us 42 different individuals. The Bible tells us about 42 different individuals that were conceived. And as you look through that list of those 42 different people, you've got people who are great, people who all of us know about, like John the Baptist and the fact that he was conceived. And you've got people who were small, people that none of us really remember reading about. People that even the Bible doesn't give their name but says that they were conceived, like three daughters who were conceived by the daughter of Pharaoh. We don't even know their names. And in seeing those examples, what we can see is that people who were great, people who were small, men, women, that there were tons of people in the Bible that were conceived. And as we look at those examples, what we can see is that everyone was conceived. It adds a personal notion to it that we can each say, I was conceived. That's what's implied by these biblical examples here. 
And I've got other examples that I talk about on our website that I just want to give an overview here. So if you're curious for more of these examples, take a look at our website. We have a page called When Does a Person's Life Begin Biblically, where I walk through some other examples. But I think there's still one question that I want to make sure that the Bible answers for us. We've seen that, yes, a person is conceived. But does that person's life really begin at conception? What I mean by that is does their calling actually begin? Is that actually where the person's life begin? Is it at conception or is it some later stage? Is this really a person's life? at conception in a more holistic sense. Now, like I said, I've got a lot more examples on our website, but maybe for this overview, I'd like to emphasize one example here to start with, and that's the story of Samson. Now, Samson, as you may know, was called to be a Nazarite for his entire life. That basically God had a special plan for him, a special calling for him. And in order for him to fulfill that calling, he wanted him to be a Nazarite. And the Nazarite vow was very particular. But whenever the angel visited his mother, and told, him about, told her about Samson and told her what he was going to do and that he was called to be a Nazarite. He explained to her that he was simply not called to be a Nazarite from birth onwards, but the scripture actually says he was called to be a Nazarite from the womb. In other words, even while, he, while she was pregnant with him, he was called to be a Nazarite. So the angel explains to her, you have to honor the Nazarite vow, that you can't eat even grapes because while you're pregnant with him, he needs to honor the Nazarite vow, even whenever he's inside of you. And whenever he's explaining, whenever the angel is explaining to her why or when she must not honor this, he says, for you shall conceive. In other words, from conception, she was supposed to honor this. In other words, from conception onwards, Samson was called to be a Nazarite. That he was called to be a Nazarite for his entire existence. His calling, that calling, began at conception. So what that demonstrates for us is that his life, his calling, began at conception. But if I can give another example, I think I'd like to give the example that sort of hogs center stage in terms of the examples of conception. Five out of the 56 times that the word conception shows up in the Bible, it's in reference to the conception of Jesus. More than any other character, that Jesus's conception is talked about in the Bible more than anyone else's. In fact, the first time that we are given the promise that Jesus will come to us, that we will have a savior, it doesn't simply say that the virgin will give birth, but that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. And that's in Isaiah. And in the books of Matthew and Luke, in recounting the incarnation and recounting whenever Jesus did come, that same emphasis for conception shows up over and over. Whenever the angel comes to talk to Mary in the garden, he says, you shall conceive and bear a son. And whenever Joseph is questioning, what do I do with all of this? How should I respond? The angel comes to comfort him and says, don't be worried. That which is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, in God's divine inspiration of the story of incarnation, not to mention in his plan for Jesus, he emphasized conception, that God put his emphasis on conception. And why did he do that? Why did God emphasize conception? Why didn't God bring Jesus to us as an adult? Why didn't God bring Jesus to us as simply a baby or a child? Why didn't he bypass pregnancy? Why didn't he bypass conception? Hebrews explains for us that he, that Jesus was made to be like us in every respect. That in other words, he was supposed to be fully man. And this is where we get that doctrine, fully God and fully man. What that means is that he was supposed to have 
a fully human existence. So in having a human existence, where did God start that? Where did he say, this is the beginning of, of the human existence? He brought Jesus to us at conception. So was Jesus not yet a person at conception? Was he somehow not Emmanuel, God with us at conception? Was he any less of who he was at the moment of conception? Can we somehow ignore the emphasis of conception and, and jump to some later stage in the pregnancy or some later stage in his life to say, okay, that's whenever Jesus actually came. That's whenever Jesus was actually here. No, we, we can't ignore the emphasis that God made, that, that science and history and the Bible all confirm conception significance, that the human existence begins at conception, that an embryo is a baby, that an embryo is a person from conception. Now, like I said earlier, these are just a few of the examples. The reality is that the Bible gives us several other examples that demonstrate this, these same points for us over and over again. And this video is really, like I said, meant to be an overview. Uh, I've got a page on our website, When Does a Person's Life Begin Biblically, that talk about some of those other examples that demonstrate this for us. And there are other questions too that maybe you have that we talk about on that page. Like, how do we know that this word for conception is actually talking about conception? Is it appropriately translated? And there are examples in the Bible that demonstrate for us clearly that it is talking about conception. And we talk about that there. And, and also maybe, maybe your question is, you know, how should we regard that person at conception? How should we regard that life at conception? Does that person have human rights biblically? And there are laws in Deuteronomy that demonstrate for us that they do have rights from conception onwards. And again, I, I hope to be able to put videos out on some of those other topics and some of those other questions to walk you through that information at some point. But for now, feel free to check out that page on our website so that you can read through some of those other questions. Now, before I wrap up, I wanna acknowledge something. I wanna acknowledge the weight that this question might represent for some of us. And the reality is that because in this video, my focus has been on helping you to reach a decision, it's done a poor job of communicating my heart on the issue. I've got another video where Monica and I share our story of whenever we ask this question and our journey in finding an answer to it. Uh, in our post for Mother's Day, we talk about that, and I think it does a better job of expressing my heart. And, and I hope that you would be willing to take a look at that so that you can hear my heart on the issue. I'll put a link for it below. Now in talking today, I can only hope that it hasn't come across that my desire is to condemn you because nothing could be further from the truth. My, my heart is not to condemn you or to judge you, but really my heart is to set you free. And as strange as it may sound, my heart is to comfort you. In our post um, that we talk about how God's commandments are love, we saw how his instructions and the truth that he gives us are actually an expression of love to us even if they're uncomfortable at first. And what I want you to know is that if you do feel any weight related to this question or related to this answer, I want you to feel confident that that weight is not yours to bear. That if this is something that's in your past, that Christ has no interest in condemning you over it, in making you feel guilty about it. That all of that was born for you on the cross. And if it's in your future, then I want you to know that Christ offers his strength as well. I know how, whether it's an unexpected pregnancy or having kids sooner or more kids even than you had planned, that the responsibility of that can be very scary and feel extremely overwhelming. 
But know that God sees you as capable. Know that you are capable. That whenever God entrusted those children to you, that he also offered his help and his strength to be able to do it well. The reason that I ask this question, the reason that I answer this question for us is because I wanna save us from the pain that ignoring conception significance can represent. I, I wanna set us free from this cycle of asking this question over and over, only to try to convince ourselves that it wasn't significant. I want us to know the truth because the truth does set us free. But I, I realize that that truth can be painful at first and hard to accept. But I, I hope that for you, like it did for us, enables you to eventually process what happened. That for us, it enabled us to realize what had happened, process it, and ultimately grieve and, and work it out. Because at the end of the day, that's what we need to feel freedom in this issue, to let this burden go, is to grieve and process what had happened. And if, if there's any way that we can help you do that, please do feel free to reach out to us any way that you can. We wanna help you through that process. Now, next time we're gonna start a new series um, on the good news. And in that series, the first post, I think will be something maybe that, that helps you if this post has been a little heavy for you. And that first post will talk about how what Jesus came to do was set us free and what he set us free from and how we can experience that freedom. So I hope that you'll subscribe and hit the bell so that you don't miss out on that post or this next series on how the gospel really is good news. Either way, thank you for joining us today.